Proverbs chapter 1 is our text here today. We're going to pick up where we left off. We'll do a quick review, but we're going to jump into verse 20 and Lord willing, make it to the end of the chapter. Proverbs chapter 1, verses 20 to 33. We're looking at the warning of wisdom, the warning of wisdom. In other words, as we study the book of Proverbs, as we've begin, begun our examination of this precious book, we introduced it, of course. The, the introduction is verses 1 to 7 of Proverbs chapter 1. But then we get into a series of lectures, if you recall this, where it's, a, it's cast in the form of a father speaking to his son, trying to impart wisdom to his son. And so last time we looked at that first speech or lecture of the father to the son, and we labeled that the associations of wisdom. And he talked about, he remember, he gave to the son uh, the wise advice of being careful who your friends are. Don't be running with the wrong crowd. And he talks about that uh, sort of band, group of bandits or that gang mentality that can be so attractive to a young man. And he says, hey, don't do that because it's leading in the way of death. So that was the warning of Proverbs 1, verses 8 to 19. Well, today we're going to pick it up in verse 20, which is uh, kind of the second speech, if you will. And we're labeling it the warning of wisdom, the warning of wisdom. And this is going to be our thought flow for the next few moments that we share together. First, we're going to give an introduction to Lady Wisdom. She's introduced for us. She's going to be a major character in this section and then as well when we get to chapters 8 and 9 of the book of Proverbs. But we're going to look at an introduction of Lady Wisdom. Then we're going to witness the, uh, the invitation of Lady Wisdom to come to learn and gain wisdom, to be wise. But then, of course, we're going to see her injunction, her warning that if we refuse her invitation, then she warns us of the dire consequences that will follow. And so we're going to see an introduction, invitation, and injunction of Lady Wisdom. All right, that's our focus here this morning. So if you got a Bible, let's read the passage together, and then we'll just take those thoughts one at a time, uh, and we'll, we'll can, you know, this will carry us through the hour. So Proverbs chapter 1, verse 20 says... Wisdom cries without. She utters her voice in the streets. She cries in the chief places uh, or chief place of concourse, in the openings of the gates. Uh, in the city, she utters her words, saying, How long, you simple ones, will you love simplicity? And the scorners delight in their scorning, and fools hate knowledge. Turn you at my reproof. Behold, I will pour out my spirit unto you. I will make known my words unto you. There's the invitation. But here's the warning, verse 24 following. Because I have called and you refused, I have stretched out my hand and no man regarded. But you have set at naught all my counsel and would none of my reproof. I also will laugh at your calamity. I will mock when your fear comes, when your fear comes as desolation and your destruction comes as a whirlwind. When distress and anguish comes upon you, then shall they call upon me, but I will not answer. They shall seek me early, but they will not find me. For that they hated knowledge and did not choose the fear of the Lord. They would none of my counsel. They despised all my reproof. Therefore shall they eat of the fruit of their own way and be filled with their own devices. For the turning away of the simple shall slay them and the prosperity of, the, of fools shall destroy them. But whoso hearkens unto me shall dwell safely and shall be quiet from fear of evil." All right. Now, as we look at this section, it is, again, important for us to, to give a bit of an introduction to this character that is here introduced, namely Lady Wisdom. Lady Wisdom. 
Now, as I mentioned just a moment ago, Lady Wisdom is here introduced in our passage, but she won't actually speak again until chapters 8 and 9, and then she's a major character in those chapters, uh, chapters 8 and 9. But let's pause for just a moment as we introduce this character and try to discover and discern who or what this is. Uh, If you do any study on this, there are some very unhelpful views that people propose as far as who is Lady Wisdom. Some will call this the feminine side of God. Some will call this his consort. There's this movement within uh, kind of secular archaeology to uh, argue that, that the God of the Old Testament, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, was no different than all the other tribal deities that were around and that they, they, he had a, a consort, just like uh, Baal and all these other pagan deities. So some will argue that this is the consort of God. Others will argue that this Lady Wisdom character is proof of Greek influence and a Hebrew, uh, the Hebrew version of Sophia, the Greek goddess of wisdom. In other words, that's one of the big arguments that critical scholars will, will try to feed you is that the Bible doesn't, it wasn't actually written when it says it was written. And so they will argue that it was uh, written, not written by Solomon, you know, right around 1000 BC. Rather, it was written much later and it was just someone pretending to be Solomon. And so they, they, they argue that this is evidence of that, that this is evidence of, of a Greek influence, Greek culture. And so they would argue that it was written, you know, 3rd or 4th century B.C. And these views are, are unhelpful, to say the least. They are destructive to a certain degree. They uh, can be easily disproven. But it does, of course, lead to the question, why is lady wisdom posed in this passage and throughout the book as a lady what why is wisdom seen as a woman if it's as most argue will it's supposed to represent god to some degree well again critical scholars see this as evidence of a late greek influence upon israel's religion and he and a hebrew version of this sophia greek goddess of wisdom but i think we have a couple of better answers for why we have this character lady wisdom And let me just make a couple of obvious uh, points that I think would be helpful. First of all, the Hebrew word for wisdom, right? Hebrew is one of those languages, like many uh, in the world, that have masculine or feminine endings. And so wisdom is a feminine noun. Thus, it's appropriate to personify wisdom as a woman. Secondly, however, I think it's appropriate because the book of Proverbs, remember, is a father speaking to his son. And he's trying to teach the son to be attracted to lady wisdom. That's what he's trying to... So he poses, he personifies wisdom as a godly, attractive woman that the son ought be attracted to. And so he then, of course, will also... I think uh, a third observation here, but it's really connected with that second one, is that it's the form... You know, the, the whole book of Proverbs is cast in the form of a father speaking to his son... So it's appropriate for him to personify wisdom as a woman. But I think the contrast is just as instructive. We'll talk about this more later uh, because it becomes more obvious in particularly chapter 9. But when we get to chapter 8 and 9, we'll talk about it a little bit more. But Lady Wisdom is the literary foil for Lady Folly. In other words, the father is speaking to the son and he's giving him two choices. You have Lady Wisdom or Lady Folly. And they're foils, right? And And the word foil, it's a literary device. It means showing opposites. Right? Comparison, contrast, for sake of clarity. That's the idea. And so Lady Wisdom is viewed as the one that you ought pursue, the right life choice. Lady Folly, on the other hand, 
which I would argue is probably a personification of pagan religion, and we'll get to that in chapter 9. But, you know, pagan religion in particular, but generally it's just any choice that we make that would be rejecting wisdom and choosing folly. So Lady Folly, if, if she is a personification of pagan religion, then again, that helps by contrast shed light on the purpose or function of Lady Wisdom. So Lady Wisdom is probably best seen as a personification of God's wise, God's wise character, which is what he wants us to follow. Some will argue that, the, that Lady Wisdom is a personification of Christ himself, a pre-incarnate Christ figure. We'll talk about that view a little bit more when we get to chapter 8. It's really some comments in chapter 8 that make people uh, hold to that view. But regardless of how you nuance this, the point is that it's, I think it's helpful for us to see Lady Wisdom, Lady Folly are the two women that are calling for the attention of young Rehoboam, right? This is the, 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 the son of King Solomon. They're calling for the attention, and they're both trying to lure him, allure him. They're both trying to convince him that their lifestyle is the way to follow. And of course, the whole point is that, that it sets it in a rather, rather profound uh, scenario, particularly for a young man, that Solomon is trying to say, listen, you need to avoid Lady Folly and follow Lady Wisdom. You need to give your life to Lady Wisdom. And so that's, and, and so Lady Wisdom is, in a sense, it's a personification of God's wise character, that God himself, it's the path he wants us to follow. But what we see is that this invitation of Lady Wisdom is given in verse 21 and following, 21 to 23. And notice it says in verse 21 that she cries out in the chief place of concourse. In other words, Lady Wisdom is issuing us an invitation that any are welcome to, to come and listen to her wisdom, to come and make a life with Lady Wisdom. And she cries out in an open and public place. In other words, she's broadcasting her invitation, crying out in the marketplace. Now, if you were with us uh, years back when I got back from Israel, did the, the you know, snapshot of the history and geography uh, and the cultural background stuff in Israel... You might recall the pictures of a city gate. And the city gate, again, if a city was walled, then it had only so many gates. And those gates were meant to be bottlenecks where people are going in and out, right? So it's the most public, conspicuous place in the city would be the gate. And often gates, either inside the gate, like even to this day, if you go, one of the big marketplaces is out or in, because it's a rather elaborate gate, but in the city of Jerusalem, if you go out the Damascus Gate, it's heading north. If you go out the Damascus Gate, there's a rather large gate system there. And gates, you know, were built with, you know, several uh, turns in them, the more elaborate gates were, because they were trying to have multiple walls and defensive positions, etc. But if you go to the Damascus Gate to this day, one, it, there's a huge marketplace. It's a bazaar that's there. And there's all these people trying to sell you their goods, etc. And But often it was either in the gate itself or just outside the gate, either inside or outside the city walls, that were very public because that's where people would go to come in and out of the city and the marketplace was normally associated there, etc. So when it says that Lady Wisdom goes to the chief place of concourse, that's the where people are coming in and out, the opening to the gate, the idea is that she wants to make her invitation known to all equally. 
which teaches us something rather interesting, namely this, that foolishness is not the result of an anguished search for elusive truth. In other words, you're not a fool because you tried your best to be wise and you just couldn't figure out wisdom. That is not the biblical portrayal of a fool. Rather, the biblical portrayal of a fool is one who represents a reckless indifference to an open invitation of truth. Truth is not hidden. Truth is not hard to discover. Truth is wide open. There is an open invitation for everyone to see, hear, and receive. So if you reject truth, it's not that you tried really, really hard, you just couldn't find it. That's hogwash, right? To use the Hebrew term, hogwash, right? It comes from the Hebrew. I'm kidding. But the point is, Rather, it is a reckless, foolishness is the result of a reckless indifference to an open invitation. Compare this, for instance, to Job 28, and we won't go there for sake of time, but in Job 28, it portrays wisdom as not a hidden treasure, right? Remember, it's a passage for miners. It's great for our community because Job 28 is all about mining. It actually shows you ancient mining practices that were rather elaborate uh, compared to what you might consider you know, what the ancients were capable of, but there was an elaborate system, uh, an ability that they had to mine things from the earth. But it says in Job 28 that, hey, we can do all of this. We can find, you know, the, the uh, riches of earth buried deep within the earth. But then it goes and it says, but wisdom's not that. Wisdom is not a hidden treasure to be dug up from the depths, nor is it the sole possession of a lonely sage upon a mountain, right? You don't have to go to Tibet, and climb the highest point of the Himalayas to talk to some dude who sits there in a loincloth, right? I mean, he's not the sole possessor of wisdom, right? That's not where you find wisdom. According to the Bible, wisdom is available for all who are simply willing to listen to Yahweh. That's the point. And that's what Proverbs 1 is telling us. So verse 22 goes on, and Lady Wisdom addresses both the simpleton and the scorner, and she will address them with first an invitation and then a warning. Verse 22, she says, How long, you simple ones, will you love simplicity? And the scorners delight in scorning. Fools hate knowledge. Now again, let's talk about this for just a second, but the danger of these two groups, namely the simpleton and the scorner, the danger of both of them is that they relish, love, or delight in their ignorance. Notice she says, How long, you simple ones, will you love simplicity? And scorners delight in scorning. In fact, the word that's translated delight is the same word in Exodus 20, verse 17, when it gives us the 10th commandment, thou shalt not covet. And the idea is that they, they actually are very comfortable in their ignorance. Isn't that true of most people? Because the reality is we don't like to be told we don't know something or we can't do something, right? This is why it's, it's classically difficult for men to ask for directions. You know what I'm saying? Not to pick on the stereotype, but it's a stereotype for a reason, right? And why not? Well, because we don't like to admit that we can't figure it out on our own, right? Oh, I got this. No big deal. We, who needs a map, right? Who needs directions? Well, the point is, and my, my grandpa was known for that, right? He'd get something, he'd buy something from the store. You know, it's like one of those shelves that you have to build and it gives you instructions and, there, and it comes in like a hundred different parts. He'd always throw the instructions away. I don't need instructions. And then he'd start building this thing and it'd be like cattywampus. And so he'd say, get the drill. And he'd just start drilling new holes, right? And it's like, dude, no, 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 no. It's built a particular way. The point is, 
We love our ignorance. We, why? Because we don't actually want to admit that we're ignorant. So we just say, well, you know, we, we, it's really a pride thing. But at the end of the day, the danger of both of these groups, the simpleton or the scorner, is that they delight in their ignorance. They, they already think they have all the knowledge necessary. And so as a result, they, they don't listen to Lady Wisdom's invitation. So her invitation in particular I mean, it's really this whole section, but primarily verse 23 is the invitation, the promise of Lady Wisdom, that if we come to her, if we make our life with Lady Wisdom, then the result is regeneration. Or what, as we read verse 23, this is essentially a description, an Old Testament version of what the New Testament will call regeneration. Notice it says in verse 23, turn at my reproof. Behold, I will pour out my spirit unto you. I will make known my words unto you. In other words, this is a shorthand way of saying what much of the Old Testament has already told us. Namely, this Old Testament idea of what we in the New Testament would call regeneration begins with humble repentance. That's the idea. Turn in my rebuke. Listen to what I'm saying. In the Old Testament lingo, this was often described as the circumcision of the heart. The circumcision of the heart. We won't go to all these passages, but Deuteronomy 30, Jeremiah 4, Jeremiah 6, Jeremiah 9, Jeremiah 31 are passages in the Old Testament that describe this process. The circumcision of the heart is the idea of being humble, listening, responding to what God has to say. And I should have put this on there. But really, one of the defining passages for the circumcision of the heart idea comes from Leviticus 26. But the point is, it's that it's an idiom for being humble and repentant. Or as she says here in Proverbs 123, turning at my rebuke, listening to what I'm saying. But if we do that, if we have a humble posture and we repent, then it says it leads to receiving the spirit of wisdom. We could go to a couple other passages, such as Exodus 31 or Isaiah 11, which describe similarly the idea of the spirit of wisdom, which is probably a reference to the Holy Spirit of God that provides supernatural wisdom. That's the idea. In fact, in Exodus 31, it was God's, uh, it's that theocratic anointing where God sends his spirit and he, and he uh, enables Aholiab and Bezalel to build the wilderness tabernacle. You remember that? These were two dudes that didn't know how to, you know, according to the text, they weren't artisans, you know, uh, naturally. But God fills them with his spirit and gives them the spirit of wisdom so that they are now capable of building the wilderness tabernacle. Isaiah 11 is talking about the coming Davidic descendant who also will be uh, infused with the spirit of wisdom. And so that's a couple of passages that, that you, you know, might be able to parallel with this text. But when we respond with humility and repentance and we listen to wisdom's rebuke, then it leads to the receiving of the spirit of wisdom and results in learning the words of wisdom, right? That's what she's saying. She says, I'll pour my spirit unto you and I will make known my words unto you. You will become wise. You will understand wisdom. Now, this leads us then to just, a, I, I want to back up and just talk about this. I've mentioned it in a number of other studies when it's uh, pertinent, 
But let's just do a quick snapshot survey here of the people that are in the book of Proverbs. According to the book of Proverbs, you will fall into one of four categories of people. And this is very helpful for me personally uh, as, as I just work with people because Proverbs gives you four categories which you're going to fall into. First, you have the simple or the simpleton. We see it first appear in chapter uh, 1, verse 4, back in verse 22, and then we'll see it again in verse 32. But this, the simpleton will appear 15 times in the book of Proverbs. The simpleton is essentially the naive, seducible, neutral, undecided, or complacent person. I like to say they're the person that is still standing at the fork in the road. They've arrived to this fork in the road, and the fork in the road represents the choice of which path you're going to follow. Which life are you going to live? Are you going to submit to God and his ways? Follow lady wisdom. Or are you going to reject God's ways and follow lady folly? All right? So the simpleton is the one who's at the fork in the road. They really haven't made life's choices yet. So they're naive, seducible. In other words, you can seduce them to go one way or the other. They're neutral, undecided. Secondly, however... This appears 46 times in the book, is the wise person. First appearance of that is uh, the wise person is back in uh, chapter 1, verse 5. But this wise person will be mentioned 46 times in the book of Proverbs, and the wise man is the morally positive person who hears and decides to obey Lady Wisdom. He hears the invitation of Lady Wisdom, and at that fork in the road, he decides to follow God's ways, to listen to Lady Wisdom. That's the wise person. Well, thirdly, you have the fool. The fool is the negative counterpart of the wise. The fool will appear 49 times in the book of Proverbs. First appearance is back in chapter 1 and verse 7. We see it a couple more times in our text, verse 22, verse 32. But the fool is the morally negative person. This is the one that at that fork in the road, they decided to follow Lady Folly. The Hebrew root word, for fool literally refers to someone who is fat or sluggish, indifferent, and will not listen. That's the idea, is that they have complacency. And we'll talk about that if, we, if time allows. Uh, there's an interesting word study down in verse 32. It's translated complacency or prosperity, depending on your English translation. But it refers to this idea of someone who is, who is so complacent that they have fat folds that go over their ears. Right? They just won't listen. And so the fool is is pictured in that way, the morally negative person who has already chosen the path of foolishness. But then you have the scorner. And we see this scorner character show up 18 times in the book of Proverbs. First appearance is chapter 1, verse 22. And the scorner is not simply morally negative, but the scorner is morally violent. I like to say the scorner is a fool on steroids. In other words, the scorner is someone who is vocally active in opposing wisdom. It's not that they've simply rejected wisdom and chosen folly, but they actively promote folly and try to tear down wisdom. Does that make sense? In other words, you can you can see this if you know, you know, if you've had any life experience whatsoever. It's pretty obvious when you start talking to somebody whether they're a fool or a scorner, right? The fool is going to be indifferent. 
to wisdom. Eh, eh, they're complacent, right? They've already made poor choices. But the scorner is someone who is actively recruiting people to the cause of foolishness. They're a missionary of lady folly. That's the idea. So the scorner is someone who is dealt with very harshly in the book of Proverbs. And so we'll see them appear 18 different times, but they are primarily who's being addressed here by Lady Wisdom, all right? Which leads us then to her injunction, her warning. Verse 24 to 33 is the, the, really the core of the passage, right? It's the most elaborate section, longest section, where after we receive the invitation from Lady Wisdom to respond appropriately, to listen, and she says, you turn up my rebuke and I will pour out my spirit upon you. You will understand the words of wisdom. But then there's the flip side, right? It's a two-edged sword. If we respond appropriately, we're blessed by Lady Wisdom. But if we, res- if we reject her and choose Lady Folly, then it results in dire consequences. In fact, let's, re- let's just kind of reread the passage and then we'll, we'll comment through it. But he says in verse 24, Because I've called and you refused, I have stretched out my hand and no man regarded, but you have said it not all my counsel. And with none of my reproof, I also will laugh at your calamity. I will mock when your fear comes, when your fear comes as desolation and your destruction comes as a whirlwind, when distress, distress rather, and anguish come upon you. Then you will call upon me, but I will not answer. They will seek me early, but they shall not find me. For that they hated knowledge and did not choose the fear of the Lord. They would none of my counsel and despised all my reproof. Therefore shall they eat of the fruit of their own way. What a scary verse. You will eat the fruit of your own way and be filled with your own devices. For the turning away of the simple shall slay them and the prosperity of fools shall destroy them. But whoso hearkens unto me shall dwell safely and shall be quiet from the fear of evil. What we see here in this warning, this harsh injunction of Lady Wisdom, is that Lady Wisdom warns the future, warns of the future rather, in order to spur us on to action in the present. She wants us to think ahead that you are willing to reject Lady Wisdom. That is your choice. That is your prerogative. God has created you to be a moral being, and you make those choices on your own, but you are also accountable for your moral choices. And so Lady Wisdom is warning about the future in order to try and dissuade someone from rejecting her. It is human nature, in fact, to neglect wisdom until we need it, yet then it is often too late. Isn't that the case? I like Bob's definition. Wisdom is what you need just after you needed it. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? It's like, whoops. <laughs> and well, that's, you know, there's, there's a lot of truth to that. And that's what Lady Wisdom is warning us about. It is, it is. It's inherent to human nature to neglect wisdom, to say, well, I'll just, I'll do it later, right? I'll listen to God later. Well, then often it's too late and catch, you know, consequences catch up to us. So what makes man's stubborn refusal so irrational is that God's commandments and warnings are for man's good, not for God's. In other words, God is not commanding us to obey him because he gets something out of it. I mean, ultimately, it glorifies him, absolutely. But at the end of the day, he's also glorified in judging the wicked. So he's going to be glorified either way. By your obedience or your disobedience, God's going to get glory. But when God gives us a commandment, it's really for our good, Right? We've talked about this many times, but let me give you an illustration that is rather picturesque. Donald Gray Barnhouse uh, used to tell a story, and it was a true story. It happened when he was pastoring. 
Uh, Barnhouse is the guy that you like, right? Yeah, yeah. All right, Levi's with me. So, and he was World War II, right? It's when he was pastoring, right? That era. So he used to tell this story. It happened during his pastorate, but there was a small child who squeezed past a metal railing that kept spectators six feet away from a lion's cage at the Washington Zoo. When her grandfather ordered her to come out, she backed away teasingly. A waiting lion grabbed her, dragged her into the cage, and mangled her to death. Barnhouse went on to say, quote, God has given us commandments and principles that are for our good. God never gives us a commandment because he is arbitrary or because he doesn't want us to have fun. He goes on to say, God says, thou should have no other gods before me, not because he's jealous of his own position and prerogatives, but because he knows that if we put anything, anything before him, it will hurt us. If we understand the principle behind this fact, we can also understand why God chastens us. Whom the Lord loves, he chastens, Hebrews 12, 6 tells us. He doesn't want us to back into a lion, for there is a lion, the devil seeking whom he may devour, end quote. All right, that's a powerful illustration, right? I mean, a, a horrendous, tragic story, but it makes the point. Is the fence is there for a reason. Don't go past the fence. But we do often ignore God and go our own way. But the fence is there for our own protection. So that's what Lady Wisdom is doing. She's forecasting the future and asserting that when, notice she says when, not if. Notice it shows up in verse 26 and verse 27. She says, I will laugh at your calamity. I will mock when your fear comes, when your fear comes as desolation and your destruction comes as a whirlwind. And then she says it again, verse 27, when distress and anguish come upon you. In other words, Lady Wisdom is forecasting the future of the scorner, the fool, and asserts that when, not if, your terror comes, she will laugh. Not in a cynical indifference to people. In other words, that's not the purpose of the laugh, but rather it's a vindication of wisdom in the face of insolent rejection. It's a vindication. She's laughing in the sense that, oh, it's the I told you so. And the picture is one that is, it's, it's even more dreadful than simply Lady Wisdom laughing at our folly when it catches up to us. But she also is indifferent to our cries. Because that's what verse 28 and following describes. He says, Then shall they call upon me, but I will not answer. They shall seek me early, but they shall not find me. For that they hated knowledge and did not choose the fear of the Lord. They would none of my counsel. They despised all my reproof. Therefore shall they eat the fruit of their own way and be filled with their own devices. As Charles Bridges puts it, it's a dreadful thing to be deserted by God at any time, as Hosea 9, 12 highlights. But how much more in the day of trouble? And he gives the reference of 1 Samuel 28. Remember, 1 Samuel 28 is King Saul. King Saul has lived a long life of rejecting God's ways, God's wisdom, God's word. He has been warned over and over and over and over again to the point that finally, at the end of his life, when he is, it's the night before he's about to face the Philistines. You remember this? They're facing off in the Valley of Jezreel. The Philistines are deep in Israeli territory and they are threatening the Israeli army and the Israeli nation. Saul, out of a panic, goes to God. And do you remember what happens? God is silent. God won't respond. Why? Because God has been pleading with Saul for decades. And Saul won't listen. 
Saul went so far as slaughtering God's priests at the tabernacle at Nob. Saul is a violent opposer of God and God's word. And now when he needs God, God says, sorry, it's too late. So he goes, remember, to the witch at Endor who rouses Samuel from his slumber. And Samuel says, yeah, I'll give you a message. You're going to die tomorrow, <laughs> right? Oh man, what a great, what a great way to go. But the point is, it's a dramatic illustration of this principle is that you can only reject wisdom for so long before it becomes too late. Now, we don't know where that line is, right? Can you make poor choices and then turn around? Yes, the book of Proverbs has hope for that. But at some point, someone who goes so far in their evil, they become so hard in their heart, they become a Pharaoh of old, and they become a Saul who goes so far that it's too late. For instance, notice as, as Lady Wisdom gives this dire warning, she summarizes in verse 31-32 by saying, Therefore they will eat the fruit of their own way and be filled with their own devices. For the turning away of the simple will slay them, and the prosperity of fools will destroy them. This, uh, to me, is a powerful parallel to Jeremiah chapter 2. Let me just read this quick. Jeremiah 2 and verse 19, which this is Jeremiah preaching a sermon to uh, the nation of Judah who was very steeped in their own sin. But he says this, Jeremiah 2.19, he says, your own wickedness will correct you and your, black, your backslidings will reprove you. Know therefore and see that it is an evil thing and bitter that you have forsaken the Lord your God and that my fear is not in you, says the Lord of hosts. In other words, just like what Jeremiah says in Jeremiah chapter 2 and Lady Wisdom is here saying in Proverbs chapter 1 is that so many times God simply lets our wickedness catch up to us. And it's our own sin, it's our own evil that disciplines us. And like I said, I could give you many examples of people in my life that I've seen this happen. Uh, you yourselves, I'm sure, could share a number of examples but we're all capable of it, is the scary thing. We're all capable of it. Paul says, but for the grace of God, there go I. Paul himself says, I daily strive, holding, restraining my own body. Why? Lest I become a castaway. Lest I become one who goes off the deep end. Which is why this idea of, of the, the, the danger of destruction... And the, the hard heart and closed ears of the fool of the scorner. This is why this passage is so harsh. I don't know if, you, uh, if that thought occurred to you as we read through it, but this is one passage that has long stood out to me as one of the harshest passages in the scripture. Where it's like, I told you so, I'm going to mock when your calamity falls. You're going to cry out for help and I'm going to say, nope, too bad, sorry, it's too late. And I'm like, Ouch. Like, it sounds so harsh. And yet, I think it's appropriate to, to notice how a harsh warning that we see here is paralleled by Jesus in Matthew chapter 23 when he is dealing with the scorners of his day. Remember the woes against the Pharisees and the Sadducees? It's a long chapter. We don't have time to comment all the way through it. But Matthew 23 is a profound example of Jesus taking off the mask 
and saying some very difficult things, things that would have been hard to hear, things that would have been considered mean-spirited and intolerant. But nonetheless, Jesus was being harsh for a reason because oftentimes it's harshness that is the only way we can deal with idleness, someone who is complacent, someone who is hard-hearted. Let me give you a quick example of this, Uh, an illustration a quick snapshot of, of this idea of idleness, which is a words study in verse 32, and then we'll wrap it up for today. Um, but when I was a camp counselor for many years, and then I was the camp uh, you know, assistant director, and then I became the director at camp for four years, there was all through there, there was a, a young lady who we saw her come back to camp every single year. And uh, I, I knew her for probably 10 years. And I saw her as a very, you know, young fourth grade girl that was just kind of a bonehead, you know, made stupid decisions, very rebellious uh, towards her, her counselors, etc. But then we'd see her come back year after year after year and make really poor choices. And it was pretty obvious when she hit her high school teenage years that, you know, she was dressing the wrong way, right? Making the wrong choices. She was trying to become this, uh, basically Lady Folly, right? She was following the way of Lady Folly. And we had, we'd had 10 years of working with this gal. And it was, I think it was my final summer there because I was about to be done with camp and I was moving over here to take the pastorate over here. And, you know, she was, she was very hard-hearted and she was very, you know, just set in her ways, convinced that she knew what was best for her life. And I sat her down because her counselor came to me and said, boy, you know, we've just been having a rough week. She is, she won't listen to anything I say. She's picking on all the other gals in the cabin. She's trying to sway these other gals to the wrong lifestyle. So I said, all right, let's, let's talk to her. So we sat her down. And I, it was me and, and the counselor and this gal. There was maybe uh, someone else was there. We had three or four of us in, in my office. And I opened up to this passage. And I read it carefully and slowly, and I said, listen, you have had warning after warning after warning after warning. And I said, I'm just pleading with you one more time because I left camp and I've never seen her since. I have no idea the end of her story. But I said, if this is the last time I get to talk to you, I want you to see how serious the Bible is. That if you don't listen to what God says, then your life is going to get really rough. And I spelled it out for her. And, you know, I I was, I don't know. Like I said, I still don't know what happened to her. She got a little teary-eyed. You know, she sat there and she took it. She said, all right. And then she went home. She went down the mountain. And I have no idea what is the end of her life story. But it makes me wonder. Every time I come in and I read Proverbs chapter 1, I think of her. And I pray and I say, man, Lord, I, I, I don't know where she's at right now, but would you please help her? <laughs> because the reality is we can only take so many bad choices before it catches up to us. But here's where the slippery slope starts. Let me draw your attention. I got five minutes and it, and it, and it deserves much longer, but go to verse 32 real quick. Let me make a quick point and then I, I'll get off it and we'll be done for the hour. He says, for the turning away of the simple shall slay them and the prosperity of fools shall destroy them. I want to look at that word prosperity or as some translations will translate it, idleness. 
This idea of idleness or, trans- or prosperity here in verse 32 can also be also translated complacency, something along those lines. But if you're familiar with the so-called list of seven deadly sins, are you familiar with that list? We'll talk about it more later because that idea of the deadly sins is actually anchored to a passage in Proverbs 6. So we'll get to it later. But idleness is one of the so-called seven deadly sins. And why is that? Well, because the scriptures are clear that we were created and designed by God to work and be productive, to be industrious creators and cultivators. Genesis chapters 1 and 2 describes that. We're not created to be complacent. But nonetheless, we sometimes are. And what happens is this sin turns work, you know, because of the entrance of sin in Genesis chapter 3, it turns work into toil. And it bends us towards laziness and indulgence. So the Bible consistently warns us against idleness. We'll talk about this more in Proverbs 6, uh, and then it comes up again in Proverbs 31. And it's actually, it pervades the book of Proverbs. So like I said, this deserves a much longer than five-minute explanation. But let me walk you through it real briefly. And we'll come back to this idea a little bit more later. But the Bible is constantly warning us against idleness. Why? Because according to Proverbs 6 and Proverbs 10, idleness brings poverty. According to Proverbs 22 and 26, this idea of complacency or idleness breeds excuses and dishonesty. Because we're ultimately lazy and we just don't want to do anything, then it results in us coming up with excuses of why we can't get something done. And then we end up being dishonest. Idleness also brings conflict in relationships, according to Proverbs chapter 10, verse 26. I can give several examples of that, of just in my own life or the life of people in our church or people that, I, you know, friends, acquaintances, family members I'm, a, you know, I'm, I'm associated with, that when you are idle in a relationship, you're not pulling your weight, then it results in frustration and conflict in that relationship. But idleness is also very dangerous because it creates opportunity for other sins. This is why it's, it makes the list of one of the seven deadly sins is because it's often considered a gateway sin. That can lead to gossip or being a busybody, according to 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 13. Or it can lead to indulgence in self-seeking pleasure, according to Ezekiel 16 and verse 49. I'll come back to that one in just a second, the Ezekiel one. But idleness is also warned against often because it promotes disorder and decay in one's life and relationships. It brings a poor reputation and it burdens other people because other people have to pull the weight that you're not pulling. But ultimately, it's dangerous, according to our passage, Proverbs 1 and verse 32, is because it bars one from wisdom. Is they, they, don't see, they don't have a sense of urgency to, to pursue wisdom. So the result is, they say, ah, yeah, I'll, just, I'll do it tomorrow. Right? It's the classic procrastinator. Right? Anyone see that t-shirt? I don't own one, but it says, procrastinators unite comma, tomorrow, right? <laughs> but the point is, right, that's kind of the classic example of someone who is idle. They're, they're, they're a sluggard. And I got a whole sluggard sermon. So it's in Proverbs chapter six. So just get ready. But the point is, the danger of this idleness is that it does, it bars one from wisdom. They don't have a sense of urgency. But let me circle back to that Ezekiel passage real quick. And then we'll be done. So let me, let me go there real quick. I don't know, I, don't, I know I don't have a lot of time. 
I about said I don't know I have a lot of time, but I do know that I don't have a lot of time. But let me make this point real quick. Ezekiel 16 verse 49 uh, is really instructive because it's in this passage, it's a very, it's a long detailed passage where God is warning the nations of Israel and Judah because of their evil and their wickedness, particularly Judah, who wasn't listening and following the example uh, of, of what God set out. But he then makes this statement in verse 49 of the chapter. He says, behold, this was the iniquity of your sister Sodom. Pride, fullness of bread, and abundance of idleness was in her and in her daughters. Neither did she strengthen the hand of the poor and the needy, for they were haughty and they committed abominations before me. Therefore, I took them away as I saw fit. In other words, this passage and again, the, the Sodom here is a reference ultimately to the northern kingdom of Israel that God was likening to Sodom. But you know who Sodom is, right? You remember Sodom and Gomorrah, the two cities and other cities of the plain that were so enwrapped in wickedness that God sent fire from heaven to destroy them in Genesis chapter 19? It's that Sodom and Gomorrah. And God is likening the northern kingdom to Sodom which is interesting because then he comments on what made Sodom so evil. And this is profound because typically when we think of Sodom, we think of sodomy. And we say that is their primary evil. And absolutely, that was a, an evidence of their evil. But according to Ezekiel 16, the primary sin of Sodom was not sodomy, but it was pride which led to sodomy. It was pride that led to sodomy because it says they had fullness of bread and abundance of idleness. Verse 49. In other words, the prosperity and abundance that they enjoyed because it was the city on a plain. Why was Lot attracted to that? Because it was lush and green and plenty of water. It was fat living. It was easy living. But according to Ezekiel 16, it was that prosperity and abundance that they had. Fullness of bread. They didn't have to worry about where their next meal was coming from, but it resulted in idleness, which as we say is the devil's playground. So Sodom hoarded their wealth rather than helping others. Then they got bored and they helped themselves to every form of indulgence, including sodomy. So the slippery slope that led to sodomy and the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah started with pride and idleness. Isn't that instructive? When I first discovered that, it blew me away. I was like, whoa, that's a scary thought. But that's what Proverbs 1 is warning us about, is don't be complacent. The, the turning away of the complacent, the prosperous, the fool, that will slay them. It's that decision that seems to be inconsequential. Oh, I'm just, you know, not going to worry about God or his word today. Eh, I'm just going to put it off. I'm just going to put it off. It's that simple decision that leads to the life of destruction. Aren't you all glad you came today? Right? <laughs> That's a depressing sermon. Someone give me an amen and we'll close in prayer. All right. <laughs> but dire warning, is it not? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the time this morning. And Lord, as we contemplate this sober warning from Lady Wisdom, we ask that you would help us to heed it, to listen to what it is that you've placed here for our learning, that we would not be guilty of rejecting Lady Wisdom and following Lady Folly. Gracious Father, 
Might you help us? Give us eyes to see and ears to hear, hearts to learn. Give us the humility to listen so that we can be filled with the blessedness of the spirit of wisdom and not inherit the destruction of fools. So, Father, help us to learn this. Help us to live this and help us to give this to those around us, our children, our grandchildren, our families, our friends, neighbors, acquaintances. God, may we be wise and give wisdom for your glory. In Christ's name we ask, amen.